morning, and welcome to episode 735 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey, Ben. How are you this fine evening? Okay, pretty good. Okay. I learned something today. Okay, good. It's always a good day when you can learn a thing. You remember that uh, we've talked about how Mike Trout has a uh, strange habit that I've been tracking since his rookie year of uh, always putting a space before punctuation? Uh-huh. On uh, Twitter? Yes, on Twitter. Presumably everywhere, but on Twitter at least. It's the only writing of his we get to see. Yeah, exactly. Well, his mom does it too. Really? Debbie Trout? Debbie Trout does it. She also will sometimes just tuck two spaces in between words just for no reason. But less less commonly. But yeah, she puts uh, spaces before exclamation points, spaces before quadruple exclamation points. You think that's she, nature or nurture? That's a, a good question. <laughs> I think that's probably more likely to be nurture. It seems like the punctuation that you use would be less heritable. Yeah, but wait, are you saying that you think that... no? So are you thinking that the chi- Do you think the chicken came before the egg? I think I think your mother is probably instrumental in your writing tendencies and your punctuating tendencies when you're a kid and she's around, right? She's guiding you. You bring your homework home. She helps you with it. She probably told him to stop not putting spaces before periods and after periods. So uh, his father does too. Really? His his brother does not. His brother is, I believe, uh, was a law student. So that would have gotten drummed out of him. Uh-huh. But his dad does it. I'm looking for his... Uh, oh, here it is. Here's his uh, sister. His sister does not do it. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I did an article on his father earlier this year, and now I'm regretting not asking him about this. Interesting. Huh. So it's definitely not... I wonder if that strengthens the case for it being genetic or not if half the people in the house aren't doing it well his mother and his father have no blood relationship so it wouldn't be genetic (laughs) unless unless by coincidence unless they just found each other yeah maybe that was their (laughs) match.com love spaces before (laughs) yeah Yeah, love spaces that that'd be a heck of a algorithm to put them together yeah i guess they predated online dating anyway i if i had to guess just a guess here. If I had to guess, I would guess that Mike Trout was the first to do this, and they are following his lead either ironically or the way that all of our parents ask us how to do Twitter at some <laughs> point. <laughs> that could be. Yeah, I would guess the other way. I would think if, if a kid has a tendency and the parent has a tendency, then in most cases it came from the parent. But you're right that... On Twitter, Mike Trout is probably a trailblazer in the Trout family, so maybe they are following his lead. Or maybe they just figure he's so good at baseball, he probably knows what he's doing with the punctuation, too. If so, they would be wrong. Mm-hmm. Do they add little airplane emojis when they take flights? Yep. They do? Uh, they... Hang on. I think I saw this, but it might just be that I saw lots of retweets of him doing it hang on are there any airplane flights i've yet to see any airplane flights actually Mm -hmm. Uh, lots of retweeting of his airplanes but Mm -hmm. okay 
You know, trout, by the way, uh, we think of that as as a trout thing. Cespedes Family Barbecue, for instance, when they fly somewhere, they will often tweet and put airplanes and they'll hashtag it, tweet like trout. But I've actually noticed in, partly I noticed this during Stompers time when we were investigating a lot of baseball players online. Mm-hmm. It's very common for baseball players to do this. Mm-hmm. I think this might be a baseball player culture thing. Or maybe it's just a young Twitter thing. I'm not sure. I don't. His sister, it looks like, also does the airplanes. <laughs> okay. This is getting creepy. Let's move on. All right. Okay. Anything else? No. Okay. So we're going to do emails, and I put out a call for emails, and you all responded. Emails flooded in. We got some good ones. So we'll get to some of them today, and we'll get to some of them in the future. I'm going to start with a science question science question for which I have an answer. It comes from Paul, and he says, my wife asked me this question while watching Trevor Rosenthal try to close out Monday's game against the Pirates. How fast would a fastball have to be in order to be considered literally unhittable? I thought, what a silly question, followed by, I know just the guys to ask. Did you ever see uh, Suyoshi Sinjo trying to hit a, I think it was a 155 mile an hour pitch in a batting cage? Yeah, uh, like and a he, Japanese game show sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and he did, he got it, right? I don't remember. You'd think I would remember the outcome of that. I just Pretty remember sure he got it. seeing it happen. So I asked Alan Nathan, go to source for all baseball physics questions, which this kind of is. So he says that for an elite hitter, The actual swing takes about 0.15 seconds. If the batter literally starts his swing as the ball is released, then he will make contact at home plate if the ball is moving at about 250 miles per hour at release. Oh my good heavens. (laughs) Of course. Way way higher than I expected. (laughs) Yeah, well, so that's if he starts as the ball is released, though, so he doesn't get a chance to actually see the pitch. So under those conditions, Alan continues... The batter has no observation or deciding time. For a pitch released at half that speed, 125 miles per hour, the transit time is twice as long, 0.3 seconds. That allows for 0.15 seconds of observing and deciding. That is probably very close to the minimum amount of time for a batter to make a good decision about whether or not to swing. So he thinks it's about 125 miles per hour for you to actually see the pitch and make a conscious decision to swing and get the bat to the ball before it crosses home plate. So he got about uh, another 20 miles per hour or so until Aroldis Chapman becomes literally unhittable. Let me ask you something, Ben. What will be the hardest pitch ever thrown? In all eternity? By a human, yeah. Going forward until the last baseball is thrown by a human. I'm saying, like... Let's say with you know with natural parts, no no yeah, cyborgs, no, cyborgs. no androids. Okay, I'll say 108. Really? So we're only because Chapman hit 106, right? Did he? I I thought it was 105, but maybe. <laughs> All right. I I think I remember who was it? Ed Price? I think yeah. Uh, maybe not. Yeah, Ed Price. He worked for Fan House, and now he is an agent. He is actually an agent. I thought he worked for an agency, but he is actually an agent. He works at CAA. Anyway, Ed Price was the guy who reported that pitch, the the 106, I think it was. Uh-huh. And this was a, what would it have been, 2009, 2010? 
Yeah, I think he was, I think he was the in the official. Fighters. The official is 105, or I think it was something like the 106 was the stadium and 105 was the broadcast, something like that. I don't know what the... I think, I think like the pitch FX record is 105.1 or something. Yeah, it, yeah. He uh, Ed Price reported 105. So anyway, th- this was when he was in the minors. And uh, I remember when he tweeted that, he said, Araldis Chapman just threw a pitch 105 miles an hour. I retweeted it and said, no, he did not. <laughs> and... I was I was pretty confident, and um, Ed Price had no idea who I was, but I, um, you know, I did have I, I think I was at the register, and I think he was he tweeted back I think something he was up he he thought that my my tweet was lousy, and that made me reconsider it, and I thought okay it probably was lousy, and so then I wrote a blog post wondering whether he did or not, and I concluded based on whatever logic I used at the time that he did not that I just didn't believe it I was not gonna believe it. Uh-huh. And um, I think since then, Araldus Chapman's history validates Ed Price's tweet. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the last couple of years, I've regretted that I haven't had a an opportunity to admit that I was wrong and uh, say that I, I I shouldn't have said that, Ed. So now you're getting that off your chest. Now I'm doing it. Okay. I was wrong. Well, what was his source? He was there. I think he was at the game. Or maybe yeah. he talked to a scout. Probably, probably he talked to a scout. Uh-huh. We don't have to rely on Ed Price, right? We can check the numbers. I would... No, because this was in the minors. Oh, this in the minors, was... I see. Yeah. Well. And and if you'd asked me, I would have thought that it was just it was a bad radar gun. But he's thrown enough pitches cl- close to that mm-hmm. that I believe it. Yeah. Well, there is. Well, he has hit 105, I think, officially on pitch FX. So. Uh huh. So. That's... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe. I mean, if he has like one. 105 and he never has another 105 then you might think maybe the system wasn't quite properly calibrated and maybe it was slightly off and i don't know maybe if you go to brooks baseball you could find an adjusted value for that that maybe lowers it someone will tell me but but yeah so it's 105 ish is the fastest i'm gonna i'm gonna read i found the blog post my immediate reaction was nope didn't happen price didn't like this reaction partially because what do i know i know nothing that's fair i'd say price has more credibility in general and on the specific topic than i do but 105 mile an hour fastball is like an 800 foot home run it borders on impossible maybe it happened nearly impossible things do from time to time but you'll never go wrong betting against the borderline impossible i believe price has a very good source who has a very good gun and that radar gun probably failed him this time and nobody should believe it happened just a few days ago i showed that detroit stadium gun and anaheim stadium gun are consistently off by a mile and a half so why couldn't one gun miss by two or three miles on one pitch on one night looks like i'm not alone kevin goldstein asked his twitter followers if they believe it's true scores of responses running about 90 percent toward false with many people declaring it quote mega false or (laughs) quote false by a ton or quote false no doubt I don't know why I put those in quotes, and I don't know why I didn't stop after Mega False, which is the only one of those that's funny. So what do you think? Did it happen? And then I updated it. In his Major League debut, Chapman hit 103. Uh, the 103 was the fastest pitch clocked by PitchFX this year. It's not 105, but Ed Price's report looks better right now. Updated further. In his second outing, he hit 104. I was wrong. Ed Source was right. Uh, Ed Price was right. <laughs> Do you still have access to the CMS? You should go back and update it again. Uh, no, I don't. Okay. 
Uh, if I did, I did talk when we talked about the Chris Correa Astros hack thing. Mm-hmm. I talked about hypothetically using access to that. And uh, no, anyway, I don't. Okay. So anyway, he has hit 105 probably or come very close to that. And so I'm only forecasting a three mile per hour improvement in the rest of baseball history, which doesn't sound like a lot. And maybe isn't a lot. It's hard to say because we don't really know how much the max speed has increased in the last century or so. You can, I don't know, there's a ton of books and documentaries and everything about who threw the fastest fastball and how fast it was. And there are so many of those things because there is no definitive answer. So we can't really say. But maybe Chapman is the fastest. And if he is the fastest, though, Probably not the fastest by more than a few miles per hour, I would think. I I don't know. So it seems like it should improve more. The max should just because the average is improving more. And more guys are throwing 95 and more guys are throwing 100. And so theoretically, you'd think more guys would throw 105 and that one guy would throw 110 at some point. So I don't know. I, I guess if you play long enough, there will be some genetic freak who can do that for a year before he blows his arm out so i'm really i'm forecasting how long i think baseball will be around more than i am anything else tom verducci one time wrote about tim lincecum and he talked about the kind of theoretical limits of what a human ligament could actually handle yeah and uh, he wrote, pitching, unlike most athletic activities, has reached the limit of what is humanly possible. So while we are accustomed to the increasingly swifter sprinters, faster swimmers, longer drivers of the golf ball, and bigger football players, you will not see a pitcher throwing 110. The arm and shoulder are maxed out. Pushed any further, the shoulder would blow like an engine in a race car. And while looking for this quote, I realized that the quote from Rick Peterson that I used in my Tommy John article this spring was also in a Tom Verducci article seven years ago. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that too. Don't you hate that? I, yeah. You're like, oh yes, I <laughs> I finally got this guy's most interesting yeah. thing to say. Like I talked to him for an hour and 20 minutes and this is the quote that really stood out. Yeah. And then you Google it and you realize. Yeah, sometimes you do that. Google it because you get a sense that it sounds too polished or too yeah. prepared. It yeah. sounds like a line he's delivered before and then you google it it's in seven other articles but, <laughs> but i guess every now and then one slips through yeah anyway i wouldn't be as definitive as Verducci was i think what he wrote is probably true for the vast majority of human beings but you never know about some strange outlier who comes along if you play baseball long enough so i'll stick with my answer hey ben mm-hmm. yesterday when i talked about how jake arietta's insane second half uh wasn't as impressive as kershaw's uh similar run earlier this year yeah i just want to clarify because there is a tendency for people to state an opinion and then once they've stated that opinion to then become very possessive of that opinion and to get even more extreme in that opinion i just want to be very clear to to the listeners as well as to myself that jake arietta's second half is insane it is historically astounding it is as good as anything ever and i am only putting it behind clayton kershaw's what i consider similarly extremely insane 
run this year. And that, in fact, if not for that, then I would have no problem saying Jake Arrieta is the greatest thing ever. I'm not saying, eh, he's whatever. This is not like the time that I went with the extremely hot take that Yasiel Puig's debut was not that cool. <laughs> yeah. I am all about Jake Arietta's second half. All right, just getting that out of the way. Consider it clarified. Kershaw's throwing a one-hitter, by the way, mm-hmm. right now. Okay. Just so you know. All right, question from Brandon. Not that my wishes have any say in the end result, but is it wrong for me to wish for baseball chaos, a.k.a. a four-way tie between AL West and second wildcard teams that would result in numerous tiebreaker games before the eventual AL wildcard game? Dude, guess, this just came in. This literally came in 30 seconds ago. I'm all over it. I guess another way of asking this is, I wouldn't want for someone else to wish that I would enter a stressful work situation for their amusement and so that I can post about it on Facebook and Twitter. Why should I wish such a fate upon anyone else? I know that baseball in general is merely distracting us from our inevitable deaths, and any added excitement is indeed a welcome distraction. I just can't help but feel that I'm hoping for something that's unduly stressful, tiresome, and ultimately frustrating for these people who are going out to play baseball in no, in no small part for our, the fans' entertainment. No, 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 no. They all want this. All the players want this. I had a the best advice I ever got in work was from a friend whose dad was a doctor. And he told me when I was a, a journalist, he said that his dad one time told him that his job was just day after day after day of monotony and repetition, seeing the same, you know, the same dumb problems over and over, uh, nothing really challenging him, nothing really pushing him, except once a year, maybe twice a year, he would save somebody's life. And like, that's why he did it. That every once in a while, your, your, your job punctuates itself and it's really exciting. You call him Ed Garver and he picks up. And they uh, would all love this. Now, obviously, if you were a game in front and then you lost on the last day of the season and now you're stuck in a four-way tie, you're disappointed. And there is a question that Brandon is not asking, but that we should all ask ourselves, which is uh, what kind of monsters are we that every night we cheer against people being happy? We root against a team. I mean, we're rooting for our team. But by definition, that means that there's going to be 25 very sad people who just wanted to go out and do their best and win, and now they're going to lose in front of everybody, and it really is a monstrous sport when you think about it. However, that's not what Brandon's asking. Brandon is implying that they don't want the stress of a chaos playoff, and in fact, they would love it. Yeah, I I think they would all choose to have the playoff spot and not do that if that were an option. But I don't think it's the same sort of stress because they deal with this stress every day. They have to play in front of us and thousands and millions of people, and that's just part of the job. And so the stress of a wildcard game or a tiebreaker game is not like us suddenly having to, I don't know, give a presentation in front of a packed auditorium when you don't do that every day. It's just them playing baseball in front of a big crowd again and the game is more important than it usually is but i mean it's it's stressful for the fans of the teams too and yet Mm -hmm. i mean it's not as stressful but it is also more stressful for the fans of the team and they love it they want this they enjoy it yeah well that's what they want again they'd rather 
they'd rather just win. They ju- they want to win. Win is the first priority. Yeah. But irrespective of the options to win or not, the excitement of the the playoff is a is an added benefit. It's a net plus. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we talk about Rich Hill? So we got a question about Rich Hill, and I was actually gonna bring this up as banter on Monday and forgot to. It's from James. He said, what is the cost to sign Rich Hill right now? A Mm. stupid to me article in the Herald suggested signing him to an incentive laden contract for next year. Maybe, but would think he can get six to 10 million guaranteed plus incentives. If a win above replacement is worth 8 million, as I heard somewhere, I'd even think someone might wrap him up for a couple years, 10 to 15 million and he gets security and a team gets a chance at the five-win outcome. He really has been unbelievable these past few starts. What do you think? What would you sign Rich Hill for right now? Have you done any research on Rick Hill? Rich Hill? Uh, sorry, Rich Hill. I researched his name, and it's Rich. <laughs> I hate you. I was distracted <laughs> no, by a play I haven't, I haven't done other stuff. I haven't uh, looked at his stuff or Okay, so without knowing about his stuff, I'm tempted to say I'd give him 3-30. and Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you, I saw your tweet the other day where you tweeted his strikeout rates at every level ever, and they're all really good. Yeah, but that was more like, that, that's not, that was not analysis. I mean, that, that was like, a bunch of them were like 22, because part of the, the actual point of that tweet, which was subtle and he's then been at lots of levels only i got was that he's been at not just lots of places but lots of places for very short periods of time like he's had the kind of career where he's had to go to high a a couple times and that sort of thing where he's he's at a place for four innings he's got a lot of like four inning stints mm-hmm. so he's got a couple of 22.5 strikeout per nine stints and then he's got one zero per nine stint uh-huh. he's also got the same uh, war this year as Jordano ventura <laughs> yeah, in, after three starts. <laughs> yeah, he's got the same war this year as he's got better war than Brett Anderson. Mm-hmm. He's got a better war than Drew Smiley. Just eyeballing it, he's not like suddenly throwing ninety-five or something. He's throwing about as hard as he was before, like ninety-one-ish. And I don't know. It it doesn't seem like his movement suddenly went crazy or uh, anything like that. He is, I don't know, it's hard to hard to compare the pitch FX stats by year because, as you said, he's had some years where he hardly pitched at all. But he hasn't suddenly turned into Randy Johnson or anything. I'm sure there is a good reason why he's doing this because it's really hard to fluke into three starts of 10 or more strikeouts and hardly any walks and not many hits. I, I've heard that command is a big part of it and mechanics and that sort of thing, but yeah, it's not as if he has suddenly found five miles an hour. Let me ask you a slightly different question, Ben. There are 40 pitchers, 40 starting pitchers in 10 postseason teams' playoff rotations right now. If mm. the playoffs started today, there'd be 10 teams. They would each have four starters that they would have in their theoretical postseason rotation. How many How many of those starters would the team rather have Rich Hill starting for them <laughs> to, you know, right now? Yeah. One start right now. Like, would you rather would you rather have him or uh, Alex Wood? I would say it'd be like thirty. Would like you rather? They would have... rather have thirty uh, than Rich Hill. Okay. That there'd only be ten postseason starters who would... they would take. 
Would you rather have him or Colin McHugh? Probably McHugh. Would you rather have him or Bartolo Colon? Him. Him or Alex Wood? Wood. Him or Brett Anderson? Anderson. Him or Michael Pineda? Um, I'm biased by Michael Pineda's start tonight, which was horrendous. Um, I'll say I'll say Hill right now. Him or Mark Burley? Him. I think I might go. I think I might put him like 16th right now. Really? Yeah. It's pitching pu- is weird, man. It pitching is. is so different. I don't think that the teams would make that choice. I think maybe you should make that choice. I think most teams would not jettison one of their starting pitchers who got them there. I mean, just for clubhouse reasons, you wouldn't do it, but also just for sort of risk aversion reasons, I think. Just you have a guy who has been pretty good for you all year if he's in your playoff rotation and you're a playoff team. And this is Rich Hill. <laughs> he's three starts. <laughs> and if you if you get rid of your you know number three starter who was pretty good for you all year <laughs> in a pretty successful year and you go with the ultimate fad of Rich Hill and it backfires, then you're dead. So I don't think many teams would do it, but I, I can see the argument that maybe a lot of them should. Mm-hmm. All right. So we didn't really answer that question. <laughs> what was the question? What Rich would Hill? we sign oh. Rich Hill for? You, well, you I said did. 3.30. Yeah. It's just like... Now, I, 3.30. 3.30 <laughs> is crazy, but it's also not that much. No, it's... I mean, the numbers always seem high. Like, we're always three years behind adjusting our brains to what people actually get or more three or more years mm-hmm. uh i mean really if it's 330 and he like would you rather have him or well i don't want to i don't want to lump all cuban guys that you've never seen before in the, but like someone gave yasmani tomas 68 mm-hmm. and i mean i can imagine that if random old cuban dude came out and everybody like saw him do this for the last three starts they'd give him a ton of money mm-hmm. right Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Richel is uh, 35 and has a long track record of not being great, so... He does. He's... If he... If you get him for 3-30, and 30, all he's got to do is have one good year, right? Yeah. Like, one good year, and that's it. But so, it's so fragile. Like, he's starting Thursday. <laughs> he's starting Thursday at Yankee Maybe. Stadium. Yeah. If he goes out and not even blows up, if he goes out and just has a mediocre start, oh, I wouldn't give him. I wouldn't, wouldn't give him the penny. <laughs> I wouldn't give him eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so I would not. I wouldn't let him eat the spread. Yeah. So uh, if you're uh, that close to not having know, a roster spot, I it's that, but it's thirty million is like not that much. You're okay. I I think that I. As soon as I said it, I my heart went. Uh, nope, not, you don't. You didn't want to say that. So I'm backing off three and thirty. I haven't heard you give an answer. <laughs> no. Hot shot. No. Well, I would. You'd really. There's no reason to sign him to more than a one-year deal, is there? Well, yeah, because maybe someone else. Maybe I come around and give him a multi-year deal. You're competing with 29 other teams for Rich Hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a sentence that I would have expected you to say <laughs> three weeks ago, <laughs> two weeks ago. Yeah, so you'd just have to do a cost-benefit on whether it would be worth it or not. But if I were going to give him a one-year deal, I mean, I, I would give him a, I'd give him a one-year 
ten million dollar deal. You would. I think I would, although now I'm remembering saying how weird it was when the Dodgers gave Brett Anderson that deal. The thing is that if you give him a one-year deal, you lose all your upside. I mean, there's this yeah, is like playing single it's deck like, back, back. It's not like this is going to be the beginning of a 10-year career renaissance or something. Like he's Yeah, that's what they said about Bartolo Colon. True, that's true. And I just picked Rich Hill over him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel like I would almost rather have him at a multi-year deal at this point well i mean i don't know what i don't know in this hypothetical world what he would ask for and what another team would offer him Mm -hmm. but i mean the odds are pretty good that you get nothing out of him but if he's good you you hope to to get a lot out of him like you want to bet on the upside so i could see like i would rather have him for two at 16 than one at 10 yeah okay except then you get to look stupid for so long <laughs> if he has one why bad are you start. So, why are you so unconfident in your GMing? <laughs> Maybe you made a great deal. Maybe you're a bold leader, the kind of the kind of GM that shakes the sport up. Maybe, but if he has a bad start on opening day, then you're stuck with Rich Hill for two seasons. <laughs> anyone, anyone would be okay with the one-year flyer, I think. Anyone would say, sure, give him one-year deal. But if you give him two and he's terrible right away and you're stuck with him for two years okay then you look like the guy who bought in two so you're at one in ten will you stick with one in ten just for a minute to entertain a, a follow-up question okay okay are you at, you're at one in ten yes okay he pitches thursday against the yankees yeah he allows two runs in the first <laughs> <laughs> how much how much now what kind of runs are they it's like uh uh single up the middle and a walk with a couple of... Uh, it's a hard single, of, though. There's like $5 million riding on whether it's, it's a hard it's, single. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Carlos Gonzalez 107 off the bat, but it's mm-hmm. a line drive. It's a, it's okay. a, it's a solid single at the middle. Okay. Uh, a walk. In between, there's a strikeout and a, and a flyout to, to left, a can of corn. Mm-hmm. And then with two outs and two on, he gives up a, a double down the right field line from a right-handed hitter. But deep. So that'd you know? be that'd be Arod because he's the only right-handed hitter on the team, I think, at this point. Uh, I'm gonna take on a on a, on a three-one count. Oh, I'm gonna lop a million off. Only a million, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just an inning. All right. <laughs> Although it does puncture his air of invincibility. As soon as It'd he gives be... up one run, I mean, he has given up one run. Yeah, he is like. I wish that he were negotiating for contracts right now, and that this was like like a deal or no deal situation mm-hmm. and like every pitch the banker <laughs> lowers his price yeah <laughs> is that how that show worked uh, I, i'm not much there of a, a game banker. show watcher but it sounds right pretty sure there was a banker okay all right all right this question i know is something you're passionate about nate from minneapolis says a couple weeks ago in san francisco wellington castillo hit into a 6-2-3 double play Obviously, he's slow. That was sort of a non-sequitur <laughs> a couple of first sentences, but he's establishing that there are slow players in Major League Baseball. What's the average Major League time to first? What's the slowest time that would be playable? What percentage of non-ball players between 20 to 30 are fast are as fast as the average Major Leaguer? I'm curious about this because speed is the least specialized tool. Well, I, uh, I'm, I've probably answered 
a version of this on the show mm-hmm. only because I tell everybody this. Yeah. But we all think that slow baseball players are slow. They're actually all faster than us. <laughs> They're all faster than all of us. Um, and I tested this one time. Uh, it wasn't like a, a super extravagant test, but I clocked Jose Molina, who I think we can all agree is uh, at the low end, is a 20-grade runner. Mm-hmm. I clocked him hustling to beat out a double play, and he was like 4.65 or 4.7, maybe 4.75 around there, which is really slow. That's horrifyingly slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went outside, and I paced off 90 feet, and I took a swing, and I ran, and I timed it, and then I did that about six times. And I'm slower than that. I'm like a like closer to five and uh i'm not uh i was never fast but i'm also in decent shape i'm an adult and i'm still pretty young so i'm like uh you know i pinch run for my softball team healthy legs and um you know i'm i'm reasonably no you wouldn't look at me and say oh he's slow and i'm slower than jose molina and i know that i know that rob nyer and had matt Corey and jeff sullivan out to a field in portland and they also ran this test mm-hmm. theirs was a farce they <laughs> rob nyer was doing they all a fell gym. down for they, one well, day. They, they did all fall down which <laughs> slows you down a lot yeah <laughs> but like they were doing jailbreak bunts like they were bunting and running as they went i mean it was a complete cheat and that's a jailbreak bunt is like you lop off about four tenths of a second i i think is what scouts will tell you and so it was not nearly appropriate for so they claim that they beat david ortiz they did not. They, they cheated. <laughs> so I also, you and I have some experience with the Stompers where fast, even at that level, was much slower than fast at the majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, these guys are really fast. Like guys who you don't think of as fast are really fast. Like Eric Hosmer is the fastest person you've ever met. <laughs> and and I don't, where'd you meet him? <laughs> well, I need to follow up question. But he is like he is he's faster than anybody you know i mean you might know you might know a couple of people who are super fast yeah. like you i mean if you ran track right and you were track. good at track like exactly. you're probably faster than jose molina if you yes. were a good if you are if you're a runner if you're like if you were the fastest runner in your class every year growing up and everyone knows you as the super fast guy then Correct. you're probably faster than the slowest major leaguer but most of us are not that. Yes, exactly. I somebody I I like I said I bring this up constantly. Uh, last time I brought it up on Twitter, somebody had a great reply. They said it always amuses me that when people talk about fat athletes, they focus on fat instead of athlete. Uh-huh. And it's true; these guys are really good athletes. They're fast. They're good. They're good at all of it. Okay, playing deck. I mean, yeah, sure. Benjamin Lina might be the exception. Um, <laughs> all right, so Ben. Yeah. This is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. Hmm. The long at bat. Oh, yeah. You had a thing once. <laughs> Subject of the most misguided series I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we all know that as an at bat goes deeper and deeper, it benefits whom? The batter. By conventional wisdom, that is true. I think And I think it, it's true on... Ben. Yeah, okay, you're, you're going to explain things indexing <laughs> okay sorry and so i didn't devise the best test for this we can talk about where this might not be conclusive but i went to play indexes uh, event finder and i looked at all three two three two at bats from 2010 to 2015 
and I broke. I got to choose how many pitches there were in the at bat. So three two with six pitches, three two with seven pitches, three two with eight, with nine, with ten, with eleven, with twelve, with thirteen, with fourteen, with fifteen, and with sixteen. By the way, in the process of doing this, play index will sometimes take you into odd spirals of inquiry. And one thing I was surprised to learn from this, and you'll have no idea how I got to this from what I was doing, but wouldn't you think that John Lester would be among the major league leaders in in inducing batted balls this year that were fielded by the catcher? Because he doesn't throw. And so anytime there's a ball that's in between him and the catcher, he just peels off. He disappears. He does not go near it. Yeah. Like I, I've sense. seen him do it. I've I mean, seen him do it in very, 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 very um, obvious ways. Uh-huh. And and also you would think that some guys, knowing that he can't throw, would have bunted against him or bunted against him more than usual. And he tries not to field those either. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Jared Weaver got 18 balls fielded by a catcher this year. Hmm. John Lester is not. He's not on here. He's not. He's not anywhere in the top 50. He doesn't. He has fewer than seven. That's interesting because John Lester's gotten a lot of ground balls this year, and Weaver is like the extreme fly ball pitcher, so you'd think that he would have even fewer. Super weird. All right, anyway, going back to this. So I look Although, at, are you just talking about grounders or any balls? Any ball. Plate so, appearances, okay. fielded by catcher. So Weaver is also the pop-up master, right? Yeah. So that is probably why? Yeah, I'm not mad at Weaver being on here. <laughs> okay. I'm mad at Lester not being on here. All right. All right. So uh, we have, I looked at the RE24, which basically looks at the run expectancy change in any at-bat. I looked at the average for all of the at-bats that went 3-2, split by how many pitches there ultimately were in the at-bat. Now, first of all, 3-2 count, generally speaking, I think of it as neutral. It is a neutral count. Mm-hmm. The numbers of a 3-2 count for a split are usually pretty close to one's numbers overall. In fact, though, there's a slight edge to the hitter, mm-hmm. and the average run expectancy change for a 3-2 count on a 6-pitch at bat is about 0.046. So about 1 20th of a run advantage to the hitter just knowing that count, okay? Okay. So that's 63,000 trials, 0.46 ones. So do you want to stick with the hypothesis that this will get more favorable to the hitter as it goes? Well, (laughs) based on your intro to this segment, no. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. Okay. Seven pitches goes to 0.52, 052. So that's... uh, an increase of six hundredths of a run on a six-pitch full count. With eight pitches, it goes to 0.67, although that's a little bit of an outlier because then it goes back down to 0.61 for nine and 0.61 for 10. So it's fairly consistent. From seven to 10 is fairly consistent, although maybe uh, maybe some... some adv- it goes up from seven uh, to eight, and then it goes down to nine and holds steady at 10. And then from there, it goes up to 0.7 with uh, an 11 pitch at bat, to 0.9 with a 12 pitch at bat, to Mm. 0.8 with a 13 pitch at bat, but to 0.14 with a 14 pitch at bat. So, uh, How many of those are there? uh, Like 100. Uh 
so not that many. Uh, and and this stat is also sensitive uh, to fluctuation because uh, if there are runners on base, then you're going to see wilder swings. So, and and then after that, 15 and 16, there are very few. There's like six examples of each of those, and the results are totally all over the place. So with 15 pitches, they've actually benefited the pitcher slightly, but again, we're talking about almost nothing. So to break it down, there is a, basically if you have a six or seven pitch full count, then it's about 120th of a run in the hitter's favor. If you have an eight, nine, or 10 pitch at bat, then it's about like a 16th of a run in the hitter's favorite. Mm-hmm. And if you have an 11 pitch or higher at bat, it's like a 12th of a run in the hitter's favor. Uh, so it actually does, uh, as the conventional wisdom says, it does seem to benefit the batter the further into the count you go. Now, of course, maybe what I'm actually saying is that uh, the deeper in a count you go, the more likely you're dealing with a mediocre pitcher who doesn't have the sort of stuff that can put a hitter away. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're dealing with a hitter who has good bat control and can fight these off. It might just be that the people who get in these at-bats tend to be the ones that that matchup already favors the hitter. This is not an exhaustive survey. This does not look at the expected uh, offensive production of the specific particular individual pitcher-hitter matchups. However, uh, there's a little something here. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Okay. Now we know. What were you going to say before I started? I was going to back up what you said. I think Russell Carlton did a thing once, maybe a long time ago, for Statspeak or something about how the more, I think he said the more balls a hitter fouled off in a plate appearance, the better he did. So everything, I I haven't seen anything to contradict the conventional wisdom that this is true. Okay. All right. Cool. Good. Play index. And you can use the coupon code BP. To get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription, we encourage you to do that. All right. Uh, Mark says... Clayton Kershaw, by the way, still a one-hitter, 12 strikeouts, one walk. Hmm. He's... It's... I saw uh, the Yankees text poll question today was, who's the NL Cy Young, Jake Arrieta or Zach Greinke? (laughs) Not even a Kershaw option, huh? Not even an option. How much does it cost to have an option on a Twitter (laughs) text poll or whatever? Like, he, he's not even free. seen as being close enough to have the option. Hmm. Which is, it blows my mind, because he'd get my vote. Really? Yeah, Kershaw would get my vote. Kershaw, here's my thinking about Kershaw. He's had, you know, it's not halves, but let's say it's the first half and the second half. In the first half, he had a bad ERA, and he had an amazing FIP and XFIP. And we all went, oh, he's clearly pitching much better than this, and... He's getting unlucky because of the ERA. And then in the second half, he did exactly what his ex-FIP and FIP said, which really is convincing evidence to me that he was pitching amazingly all along and that there was nothing real about his ERA. Uh Like we said, he's going to be the best pitcher in baseball from this point forward. He was the best pitcher in baseball from that point forward, arguably, Mm -hmm. in my mind. Uh, And so I think he should get full credit for the first half ex-FIP as well. All right. He proved it. Okay. So you're sort of giving, you're, you're going with who's projected to be the best pitcher? I mean, he would, no, be the, no, I, he would be projected to be the best pitcher today, tomorrow. And so that's saying he is the best pitcher in baseball, just based no, on true talent. No, I, I sort of phrased it poorly, but you I'm saying that... You think he actually that, was 
I think that he actually was the best pitcher in baseball. He actually pitched better than anybody else for the first two months of the season when he had an ERA of 4.6 or whatever. All right. Mark says, whatever happened to rotator cuff injuries? It seemed that in the 80s and 90s, we see we saw a lot of pitchers go down with rotator cuff injuries. Now it's all UCL replacement surgery, and you rarely see a rotator cuff injury. Has something changed? Were rotator cuff injuries misdiagnosed? Was it Roger Craig's splitter? I don't have a definite answer for that, but there has been some stuff written about how Mark is correct about that. Jeff Zimmerman wrote something for the Hardball Times last year, and Rob Arthur wrote something for 538 this year when there was a lot of elbow hysteria. Rob pointed out that at least it's not shoulder hysteria because shoulder injuries are even worse and have lower success rates, and he showed just a graph of over time, and it was around the late 90s, he found, like 1998 was when the trajectories of elbow surgeries and shoulder surgeries diverged and they had sort of both been rising and then elbow injuries took off and shoulder injuries sort of plateaued and have now decreased and Jeff and Rob think it's about just better training and conditioning basically that exercise has gotten better that we've found ways to strengthen the shoulder that it's easier to strengthen the shoulder you can't really strengthen a ligament very effectively and so the more strain you put on it the more likely it is to tear but the shoulder you can find ways to strengthen it condition it make it somewhat more immune to injury and that seems to be the place where teams actually have made an impact in keeping pitchers healthier so that's the the good side that's the silver lining so did they i, I thought uh did they do we just call rotator cuff injury something different now I mean, it, labrum is or something right. Is a labrum injury the same as a rotator cuff injury or are those separate things? Cause it's not like shoulder injuries. I mean, he's right in the, in the late eighties and in the nineties, you heard about rotator cuff injuries all the time. And now you never, I never hear those words. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I assume people are still hurting their shoulder. I know they're still, it's shoulder injuries are up from that point in history. It's just that you never hear the phrase rotator cuff anymore. You hear labrum a lot. I don't know yeah, if they're the same. I don't, I don't think they are the same. They are not the same, no. But uh, but if you look at the Rob Arthur graph, and I just sent it to you, and it's just it's based on uh, DL stuff, DL appearances, and shoulder injuries were rising through the 80s, through the 90s, almost up to 2000 or so, and then at least over the last several years, they've really headed almost straight down. I don't know if that's an accurate reflection of the real risk at this point or whether it's just a couple lucky years for shoulder injuries. But at this point, according to that graph, they are at, you know, 80s levels at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, yeah, 80s levels. Not lower than the 80s. Huh? No. All right. Can I ask one more question? Uh-huh. Okay. I want to, if you don't mind, I want to answer a question that was asked by Stan, who... Okay. Uh, who employed me to be the binding arbiter, arbiter, arbitrator in his league's uh, tiebreaker dispute, yeah. his fantasy league's tiebreaker dispute. Just wondering what that email was about. So uh, I'll make it very quick. 
because uh, you know another guy's fantasy league. However, I'm interested to know what what you think about this ruling. Basically, here's the thing: they're in a league with head-to-head points matchups, and these points matchups usually come down to like I mean they go to the hundredths of a point. There's never been a tie in ten years at any in any matchup. Okay. Okay. And then in the championship this year, there was a tie. There, the first tie in ten years of history came in the championship game. Now. They have a tiebreaker protocol. It's in the Constitution. In the Constitution of the league, it says that the tie, first tiebreaker is whoever gets the, whoever has the fewest points on his bench, which is a weird way <laughs> to, to do it. But you know, maybe it's a, a statement about efficient use of your roster. Okay. Huh. However, in so the, the league, the guy with fewer points on the bench wins the tiebreak. Yes. Interesting. He left fewer points on the bench would be a way that you might see that. But okay? you could also say that the guy with more points on the bench has a better team. You could. And as it <laughs> turns out that in the league's settings on the league's content management system or whatever, the setting is set to most points on the bench. Yeah. So these two things conflict. The Constitution has existed for 10 years. It had been reviewed by all the parties involved. Uh, and... Uh, it was the foundational document for this league. So now we've got two teams that both claim that the league rules support their claim on the championship. So he asked me to decide who should win. So the the other guy's claim is that the default, he's going with the default setting. He's saying it should be that instead of the Constitution one. Uh, it's not a default setting. It's that the settings were set to whoever set oh, the so setting the constitution and the settings conflicted conflict yes i see okay yeah. so tech so he won so the if you go to the league page it says he won exactly okay huh so i've asked a bunch of follow-up questions so if you have any i might know the answer but if you think it's simple and cut and dried you can also say that it's not simple and cut and dry but i don't know if i have follow-ups what were your follow-ups uh, I don't want to go through all my follows. Okay. Are, does any of them have any bearing on the answer? Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Not Nothing that would shock you. Yeah. It's not a satisfying end to the season either way. I guess it's a memorable end. Maybe it's nice to have a weird ending every 10 years. But it's just such a weird setting <laughs> it's such a weird tiebreaker yeah either one is satisfying okay i do have one this might be relevant to your decision okay i did talk to the commissioner about the intent of writing the constitution and basically they imported the constitution boilerplate from another league and then amended it as they needed to mm-hmm. that the tiebreaker is what it is in the constitution was unintentional it is not what he intended i don't know if he didn't probably write those words, and so it, he failed to amend them. I see. So and so, some, the so founding they probably fathers, just imported this setting from some other person's league a decade ago, and no yes. one thought it was important enough to change, or no one noticed. Yeah. So you could say that the founding fathers' intent in writing the Constitution was that the most points on the bench would win the tiebreaker, which seems relevant. You could also argue, though, that the Constitution is the oldest document in the league and takes precedent over everything else, the Constitution being not just a law, not just a rule or a regulation, but a Constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I think uh, I think I'm going to be a strict constructionalist, and I'm going to say that the Constitution applies. 
I don't think that's what strict construction. The I mean, strict constructionalists in the, the common usage are interested in what the founding fathers were thinking when they wrote it, and so they it, right. Well, it limits judicial interpretation, and that's what we're talking about here, sort of. We're not we're not interpreting what the commissioner intended, though. We can ask the commissioner. The commissioner is capable of telling us. True, but do we know what everyone else in the league intended? I guess it, it maybe it doesn't matter. But if yeah. everyone else in the league, I mean, everyone else in the league may have thought this was intentional. They they all ratified this agreement, right? Presumably, it wasn't imposed on them, and so they all read this and signed off on it, and that should matter. Here's here's I think the an important detail. There was. It's not as though either team was playing for the tie. It's not like there was any strategy involved in getting the tie. They basically got in a position where by dumb luck they were tied and by dumb luck one is going to win. There's nothing there's nothing particularly like logical about either of these tiebreakers. It's you're basically just going to get like nobody was trying to have a deep bench so they could win this tiebreaker. Mm. Nobody was playing for the tie knowing that they had a deep bench or the opposite. You can't say that any of your plan was thwarted because of either interpretation, right? Right. And so in this in that sense it almost becomes random mm-hmm. which person wins. And in lieu of randomness, I think we can aspire to have a somewhat more sensible way of reading this. And the fact is that the constitutional rule makes no sense. There's no logic to it. It's stupid. <laughs> it's dumb. It looks like an accident. It looks like a dumb accident. Right. It, it means nothing. It's like you could just pick any detail that you want. You could say, like, whichever team has more A's in their last names. Yeah. Like, whatever. It's dumb. How is it not like previous head to head record or like or season long <laughs> points totals or something sensible? That would be what is going least, on in this league. At least, though, the most points on your bench in some way kind of mimics real competitive life because in real sports, your bench is kind of the tiebreaker in a way. Um, You do use your bench, and normally you don't use your bench in this league, but in this one case, you are going to the bench, and it makes no sense to go to the bench and go, all right, which bench is worse? You win. It makes some sense to say, all right, which bench is better? You win. And so there's a, a little bit of an internal logic there. I think the commissioner's wishes are uh or intentions are significant and i just think that the fact that there isn't really two yes there are two documents that say two different things but it's not like until this came up anybody was debating it there weren't partisans on both sides this isn't a political dispute that happened this is a typo that happened and when a typo happens it's I think it's best to let the lawmakers attempt to correct the typo rather than saying, well, that's the law now and we can never change it. Mm-hmm. So I, unless you are going to strongly object and force me to bring in another party, um, I want to rule in favor of the most points on the bench. I'm not adamant about either position, but okay. I, think, uh, I think you've opened up a slippery slope here. And I think they better review the, the text very carefully before next season, or there could be commissioner overreach. Yeah. I mean, you you do kind of agree that 
like if the dude won with the worst bench, that would just be <laughs> such a like like. I mean, talk about a loophole. Talk about talk about something. I don't know what the correct expression is, but falling uphill. So you wouldn't consider just tossing out the bench condition and going with and going to the second tiebreaker just going to a tiebreaker that makes sense <laughs> just so. well there is a there is a second tiebreaker what is the second tiebreaker home field which i don't know what determined home field okay my i have no idea what determined home field that is a fair that actually yeah if you could so we don't know if that's invalidate the first tiebreaker because there are two right. documents that conflict right oh invalidate the first tiebreaker go to the second tiebreaker I think I like that. I think I do too. And then we'll find out that home field is determined by who had the most points on their bench. <laughs> but hang on. All right, the tiebreakers. Order of tiebreaking in the event of a tie in any given game. 1. Winner is decided by the least points left on the bench. See, left on the bench. There's a that verb there is somewhat not somewhat non-neutral. Sounds like whoever did like, write that. Yeah. Sounds to me like did, you're, yeah. you're legislating from the bench. Second one, winner is decided by home field. All right. Well, so we don't know what that means exactly, but assuming it's based on something more substantial, or even if it's not, because as it is, the default is barely sensible. So yeah. there's only I think there's only two rational ways to look at this. One is that the first tiebreaker is invalidated because it is not consistent across the league's rules, and therefore... It has to be rewritten to be consistent. You cannot enforce both laws simultaneously. They're dumb. Mm-hmm. Or you say, clearly it's a typo. Let's give the benefit of the doubt to the author, who incidentally is not one of the parties here and has nothing to gain by uh, revising his intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of those is really, I think, would be the two choices. I'm, I think I want to say invalidate the tiebreaker, go to home field yeah i back that all right all right all right it's settled <laughs> the first case of the effectively wild court it's right. kind of fun yeah that was good so all right your other disputes preferably not fantasy league ones but only if they're as interesting as this one all right last thing a question from nick because I want to connect it to something we said earlier this year. Nick says, for the last several years, the best shortstop in the game has been Troy Tulowitzki, but is he still have players like Xander Bogarts or Brandon Crawford surpassed him? So maybe that's the maybe that's the, the quick question. Is Troy Tulowitzki still the best shortstop in the game? Assuming he's fully healthy, which he's not, but which he never is. <laughs> but if, uh, if he were healthy tomorrow, would you want him over Correa, Bogarts, Seeger, Lindor? I would probably take. I probably would take Correa. I would probably take Correa too, and so that's the. I think the cautionary tale here, because we had a question. I think it was July. I think it was like around the trade deadline that we talked about on an earlier email show from a listener named Kevin, and yeah, I think it was around the All Star game or a little after the All Star game, and he asked us about the decline of shortstops and how shortstop has declined in a, as an offensive position. And he had a hypothesis about how we understand defense better. And so, you know, more teams are okay with putting a, a glove first guy there who doesn't hit that sort of thing. And I think at the time we 
came down on the cyclical side of things. Like, or at least I think we may have said that it's not that this is the anomaly. It's that the big three were the anomaly and that having Jeter and A-Rod and Nomar at the same time was strange and, and adjusted everyone's expectations away from what shortstop had historically been. So now we're uh, two months after we answered this question, maybe, and I don't think anyone would say that shortstop is now a weak offensive position. Now, suddenly, three of the most exciting young players in the game who've had some of the best second halves in the game are shortstops, and Xander Bogarts is hitting now. So you've got, you know, along with Crawford, maybe, and, and a couple other guys, you've got like five possible superstars at shortstop all of a sudden i guess i mean that was that was foreseeable it wasn't it was it's not a surprise that these guys are good they were at the time top prospects and they've made a quicker transition than anyone expected them to i think but it's a nice reminder that a lot of times we come up with reasons and rationales for things that are really just things that we notice in the moment because they're true in the moment but they're not true in the moment before or after. I won't believe in this crop of super shortstops until I see them posing shirtless with gold chains in Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Yeah, you'd think someone would have gotten on that by now. I mean, Switch. Photoshop, if nothing else. It's a two-minute Photoshop. Yeah, we should we should email Emma Spann and give her a free cover suggestion. You'd think that they would want to do that just for the throwback value. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's it. I've got... More excellent questions on my Word document here that we didn't have time to get to, but I will star them for next week, and please keep them coming. And send us those questions at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can debate our Fantasy League ruling in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And as we've already said, you can support the Play Index with the coupon code BP. We will be back tomorrow. There's like $2,000 riding on it, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't tell me that before. Uh huh. <laughs> There's actually, not only is there like $2,000 riding on it, but if the commissioner overturns the league settings ruling mm-hmm. and goes with the constitutional ruling, uh, it is likely the league will break up. Oh, wow. Because too many, uh, a couple of people are like, refuse to pay into the system. Wow. This is really momentous. So we might have just destroyed a (laughs) A league that had been going for 10 years. (laughs) Well, I feel bad now. Do you want to reconsider? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I hope the guy who won had home field advantage, (laughs) whatever that means. I do too. I I do too. I mean, it's a it's a it's a bad break that he it's a bad break that he doesn't win in one sense. But again, it basically the tie was so out of their control and so beyond his intention and the tiebreaker itself is so random as it is that really it's it should be a coin flip there's no there's nothing that makes much more sense than a coin flip Mm -hmm. so now it's a coin flip whoever had home field we don't know which one i think i should have gotten more credit for legislating from the bench you're just saying words you're just like making references now like they don't (laughs) it's a phrase it is we're talking about the bench the whole time we're oh, literally legislating the bench. legislating on the bench. On the bench, maybe. From the bench. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I... There's a bench I, involved. I guess. All right. See ya. Bye. <laughs>